Lord, what a great privilege it is to open up this, this book of infallible writings from the Holy Spirit and preach it. What a privilege. What a privilege it is to hear it. And oh, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would come in power. May He attend His Word. Lord, would You give us eyes to see and ears to hear truth, that it might transform us. Lord, we long just to sit at Your feet like Mary did and drink in the words of the living God. So make that so, in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes men angry enough to kill God? That's the question I want to try to help you get an answer to today. What makes men angry enough to kill God? <laughs> In the sermon that Jesus preaches from Luke chapter 4, men were angry enough to kill God. In fact, they tried to. That's not how the sermon started, though. When the sermon started, the Bible tells us in verse 22, all were speaking well of him and were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. So at the beginning of the sermon, they loved it. They enjoyed it. But Jesus wasn't done with his sermon yet. He kept going. And the further along he got in his sermon, the angrier and angrier his hearers became to the point where they interrupted his sermon, grabbed a hold of him, drug him out of the synagogue, took him to the brow of a cliff and wanted to throw him over to kill him. That's how mad they were. So this has got to be one of the most unique sermons ever preached in the history of the world. Where else in the span of 40 or 45 minutes do you go from loving the preacher to absolutely hating him and wanting to kill him? Well, let's review a little bit before we get into the text. Let's review what's taking place. Jesus is about one year into his public ministry. Jesus has been in Cana of Galilee where he has turned water into wine. And then he has gone down to Jerusalem where he has cleansed the temple. In chapter 3, he has an interview with Nicodemus where he teaches him about the new birth. In chapter 4 of John's Gospel, we read about Jesus having an interview with the woman of Samaria. And she is brought to faith along with many of the Samaritans. Then he heals a nobleman's son. And in John chapter 5, he heals a lame man who's never walked in 38 years. At that point, he makes his way back into Galilee. And he's doing a circuit through all of the towns and villages in Galilee. And the Bible says he's teaching in their synagogues. And he's being praised by everybody. Everyone loves him. In fact, Jesus is such an amazing teacher of the Word of God that they can't believe it. They just sit spellbound as they listen to Him open up the law and open up the prophets to them. Well, eventually, He makes it back to His hometown where He grew up, which is Nazareth. Remember, Jesus lived there most of His life, His boyhood, until He was about 30 years of age. So everyone in Nazareth knows Him. He's got neighbors that know who He is. He's got clients that he's done carpentry work for. They know who he is. He's got family members. Jesus comes to his hometown, and as his habit or his custom, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he opens up, or he stands up, to read the scriptures. The attendant gives him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. 
And Jesus takes those two wooden scrollers and opens it to the place. He's looking for something very definitely. He opens it to the place where we would call Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And he reads those verses and then he rolls it back up gives it to the attendant, and he sits down. Because in those days, the posture of the teacher was to sit. You stood to read, you sat down to teach. Remember Jesus, when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down, and then his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So he took the posture of the teacher. He sat down, and the Bible says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Imagine you could have heard a pin drop. The atmosphere was charged because they had been hearing these prophecies about the coming Messiah for centuries. And whenever anybody read those or expounded on them, they would say, your Messiah is coming. He's not here yet, but he's going to come. Just wait. And year after year after year, this is what they would be hearing in the synagogues. He's coming. Hold on. He's going to get here someday. Just hold on. Just wait. Jesus said, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's not coming in the future. He's here. And guess what? I am him. I am the Messiah. And up until this point, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his mouth. Now you would think that Jesus could leave well enough alone stop his sermon at that point and leave town with everybody loving him, having all these new followers that just loved him and just... No, he doesn't do that, does he? He keeps on talking. And the longer he talks, the angrier they get. Evidently, Jesus hadn't read all about our church growth books today. If you want to grow your church really big, this is how you do it, Jesus. He didn't operate that way, did he? Jesus was much more concerned about being faithful to God and faithful to the Word of God than he was about being popular or loved or to have the applause of men. So he told them some very hard things for a Jew to hear in that particular day. Now, why were they so angry? Basically, they were angry over two truths that Jesus was bringing to pass and enforcing upon them. The sinfulness of man and the sovereignty of God. And whenever you take those two twin truths and you press them home and apply them to the hearers that they are sinful before God and that their God is sovereign, that He's in the heavens and does whatever He pleases, you're going to have an angry congregation. Because the natural man does not like those truths, although they are taught from Genesis to Revelation. We cannot escape them. If we're to be faithful to God's word, we cannot overlook them or neglect them. They are true and they are helpful for the people of God. The Free Grace Broadcaster, which is a little pamphlet that's printed in Florida, on the cover of that little pamphlet, every single issue, it says this, Our purpose, to humble the pride of man, to exalt the grace of God and salvation, and to promote real holiness in heart and life. Jesus fulfilled the first two of those. Jesus was humbling the pride of man, and Jesus was exalting the grace of God in salvation. So this morning, we're going to see that their problem was twofold. The people that were listening to Jesus had a twofold problem. Their view of themselves was too big, and their view of God was too small.
Their view of themselves was too big. They didn't see themselves as sinful as they really were. And their view of God was too small. They didn't see God as sovereign as He really is. So let's take a look at the first one. Their view of themselves was too big. Now, verse 22 says, They're all speaking well of Him, wondering at the gracious words which are falling from His lips. You see, Jesus must have been the greatest speaker who has ever lived. Would anyone deny that? God incarnate, the God-man, comes into his world, and when he speaks, what do you think it must have been like? In fact, in John 7, 46, some people tried to arrest Jesus, and they couldn't, and they came back, and they said to their superiors, never did any man speak the way this man speaks. He was a master communicator. We know that just from reading the Gospels, don't we? Or read his parables. They were... <laughs> They were the composition of a genius. Just take the, the parable of the prodigal son. Just take that one alone. I am amazed whenever I just read that story. How did Jesus come up with that on the fly to fit a particular situation so perfectly? He was a master communicator. He was a master when it came to clarity. Everything he said was exactly as clear as he wanted it to be. Now, it's true, sometimes the parables were not clear, but that's because intentionally Jesus wanted it to be clear to some and not to others. But he was clear. He was passionate. He understood God's word perfectly, and he communicated it perfectly. So the people sitting in that synagogue that day were just drinking it in, and they're thinking, we've never heard Jesus speak until today. Where did he get this wisdom? How can he speak like this? This is our hometown boy. We know him. We, we've known him since he was a little boy, and now he's grown up in our midst. We can't believe the words that are coming out of his mouth. Now, that's not to say they believed the words. That's not to say they were convinced by them and believed in Jesus as their Messiah. They didn't. But they were blown away by the execution of his message, by the way he could communicate truth. What was Jesus preaching? He was taking Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and he was applying it to their lives. Now this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Five things. He sent me to proclaim good news to the poor, release to captives, Recovery of sight to the blind, release to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Look at the description of the people mentioned in verse 18. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Remember what poor means in this particular context? We talked about that last Sunday morning. It doesn't just mean you don't have very much. It means you don't have anything. You're absolutely destitute. You are a beggar. The original word means to cower or to cringe. It's the picture of a beggar so shamed that he's in the, the shadows with his hand over his face with one hand out cringing, asking for alms from the people. Jesus is saying, I've come to proclaim good news to people like that. People who don't have anything to give to God. They're beggars. All they can do is receive from God. And I've come to proclaim release to prisoners, to captives. 
I've come to proclaim recovery of sight to blind people. Release to oppressed or downtrodden or crushed or broken people. So Jesus is saying to this group of Jews that have come there on this Sabbath day, if you want to be saved, you have to identify with the people I've been talking to you about. Are you destitute? Are you a prisoner? Are you blind? Are you oppressed? Now, how do you think that group of Jews would have responded on that Sabbath day so many years ago? These are respectable religious people, aren't they? By, I mean, they're in the synagogue of all places. They're worshiping. These are people who fast and they pray. They're good people. They're righteous people. When you look at them from man's perspective, there's no way that they're going to say, I am a beggar. I'm blind. I am a captive to sin and Satan. I'm oppressed and crushed and downtrodden. There's no way that they're going to take that posture. In fact, they know who Jesus is. It says in verse 23, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard that was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So they wouldn't humble themselves. They were filled with unbelief and anger against Jesus. And what are they saying? Is this not Joseph's son? There it is, verse 22. I was searching for it. The end of verse 22. They were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? We know who this guy is. He grew up in our midst. In fact, we changed his diapers in Sabbath school. You know, We know him. We, we watched him play games outside with his brothers and, and the neighbors. And now he has the gall to come back now that he's got a little bit of notoriety. Now that he's been preaching around the synagogues. He has the gall to come back and tell us that we're poor and prisoners and blind and oppressed. And so the rage begins to build in their hearts. So the problem with the natural man is not the gospel. The problem is his own proud heart. You know how hard it is to try to reach a self-righteous person, a good person, a person who is wise in their own eyes and good in their own estimation? It's nearly impossible unless God does a miracle to crush that proud spirit and lay them low in the dust to see themselves as absolutely nothing. Salvation comes to people who are willing to admit, I'm nothing, Lord. I have nothing. I have no righteousness. I'm blind. I can't see the truths of your word. I can't see the glory of Jesus. I feel oppressed and crushed by the weight of my troubles in this world. I can see that I am a prisoner of sin. I need to be set free. I'm a captive. Salvation comes only to people who are willing to take that humble position before God. And to someone who's religious and self-righteous and respectable, forget it. These people react in anger instead of humility. Instead of humbling themselves, they, they shake their fist and say, Who do you claim to be? How dare you? come into this synagogue and tell us and point your bony finger in our faces and tell us that we're poor and captives. No way! And they begin to react against him in rage. 
Folks, we need to beware of pride, don't we? We need to be very, very concerned that pride does not well up in our hearts. Even as Christians, we need to beware of it. You know, the Bible says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. How many of you want Almighty God to be opposed to you? You want that? I sure don't. I don't want the God of the universe standing against me, in opposition to me, blocking my way. If I'll just humble myself, oh, what change. He gives grace. Gives grace. And isn't that what we need? <laughs> oh, we need the grace of God. He gives grace to the humble. So we need to beware of pride. We need to agree with God. That's really what confession means. It means to agree with God. God says, I'm a sinner. Okay, I agree. I am. I am Lord. God says, you have no righteousness. And any supposed righteousness you have is like a filthy garment to me. Okay, Lord, I agree. <laughs> I've got no righteousness that is acceptable to your all-holy eyes. And so we have to come to the Lord humble. You remember in Revelation 3.17 that the church of Laodicea were saying, we're rich. We're increased with goods. We can see. And, and Jesus has to say, no, that's not really true. You don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now Jesus is saying this to the church. This is a church he's talking to. You say you're rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's your estimation of yourself. No, that's not true. Let me tell you the true situation. You're wretched. Miserable, poor, blind, naked. Now he's talking about in and of themselves. If you are in Christ, you can take a look at yourself from a whole new vantage point. That is to be united to Jesus Christ. And if you look at yourself in that vantage point, you are rich. You do have the righteousness of God. You do obtain and possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So their view of themselves was too big. They couldn't humble themselves and take a low position before God so that they could receive His grace. They could hear Him proclaim good news. <laughs> That's what we all need is good news, right? The gospel. They couldn't hear that because they couldn't take that low posture. They couldn't hear, you can have recovery of sight. You can be set free. You can be released from that position of being downtrodden. They couldn't hear that because all they could think about themselves is we're okay, we're good people, we're respectable, we're religious. Surely God is impressed with us. No, friend, He's not. He's impressed with one person, His Son. He's impressed with Jesus. And if you're in Him, that's a great place to be because that's the only place you can find acceptance, this side of the grave is in Christ. So their view of themselves was too big, but secondly, their view of God was too small. They did not understand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now, what do I mean when I talk about the sovereignty of God? It's real simple. God is king, and He's sitting on a throne, and He rules. And we don't sit on that throne, and we don't rule. God is different from us. 
We are in no place to be compared to Him. He is sovereign. The sovereignty of God means that God does as He pleases. Only as He pleases. Always as He pleases. He's answerable and accountable to no one. He takes the highest and supreme place, and from that place, He rules over all things. In fact, the book of Ephesians says that He does all His pleasure. All things are done according to the counsel of God's own will. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. That means that we can't control God. We can't manipulate God. We can't force God. We can't do anything to God. If you're smart and you know that He's the King ruling from the throne, you just get on your face before Him and you surrender to this God. That's what you do. So there are three truths about the sovereignty of God that I want you to understand. Number one, God does not owe anyone anything. That's number one. God doesn't owe anyone anything. Look at verse 23. No doubt you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus says, no doubt you're going to quote a proverb to me. You see, Jesus was reading their minds. He could do that, you know. <laughs> It says in John chapter 2 that he knew everything that was in man. He didn't have anyone, he didn't need for anyone to tell him what was in man because he knew what was in the hearts of all men. He, he knew that they were thinking, physician, heal yourself. Now that was a proverb that went something like this. Physician, you're going around healing everybody else. You're making house calls to this one and to that one and over to this village and that village. You're doing your work. You're taking your skill and you're bringing healing to all these other people. Well, look, you're sick yourself. Why don't you heal yourself? Bring the benefit of your knowledge and your skill to home and heal yourself and those closest to you like your family. You see, they were equating Jesus healing all those people out there as what he had been doing as he went about all the villages and towns of Galilee. He had been doing miracles. He had been healing people. He was like a great physician going from place to place, town to town, turning water to wine, or healing the nobleman's son, or raising up the man who was lame for 38 years. And now he had come back to Nazareth, and they're saying, well, physician, heal yourself. In other words, do the same things that you did in all these other places right here. We want to see it. Now, why would they be so insistent that Jesus would do miracles right there in their midst for them to see? See, they didn't believe. And they required signs if they were going to believe on Jesus Christ. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation requires a sign. They required one. We will not believe Unless, physician, you do right here what we've heard that you've been doing all over there. See, what they were doing is that they really were saying, you owe us. We have a special claim upon you because you're one of us. You're from our hometown. If you're going to do miracles in these other places, then you 
you better do the same things right here because we're, you know, we're your friends, we're your neighbors, we're your relatives, we're your hometown people. We have a claim upon you, a greater claim than anybody else does. You owe us, Jesus. Do here what you've done in these other places. And Jesus is not about to do that, is he? You can't make claims on Jesus Christ. You cannot obligate God. God will never be a debtor to any man. I want to show you a scripture in Romans 11, verse 34 and 35. Paul is winding up this great doctrinal section of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, and he's coming to his climax, and it's a climax of worship. It's a doxology of glory to God. And this is what he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, answer me that question. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Who became his counselor? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. Have you ever been God's counselor? Are you wise enough to tell God what he needs to do? <laughs> Look at verse 35. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Have you ever done that? Have you ever given God something to put him in your debt so that he has to repay you? Now, you can say, yeah, I've given God things. I've given God money. I've given God time. I've given him of my energy and my effort. But friends, did, did you give that to him without him first giving you that money or that energy or that effort or that gift? No. Everything that we have given to him is because he has first given it to us. We can't give anything to God that he hasn't first already given to us. That means we can't put God in our debt. He'll never be obligated to a human being. He'll never be obligated to any of his creatures ever. Which means that everything that comes to us comes as pure grace. How many blessings has God given to you that he owed you? None of them. None of them. What is it that we deserve from God? Nothing but judgment. Nothing but hell is what we have merited. That's what we have deserved. Did you notice back in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus is speaking in imperatives? He says, no doubt you will quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. The word heal is an imperative. It means it's a command. Or the next verse, well, it's still verse 23. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do it. Heal us. Show us a miracle. These are imperatives. They're commands. They're commanding Jesus. They're bossing him around as though they have some kind of lordship over him. That he's somehow underneath them and they're above him and they're saying, do this. Heal this one. And Jesus wouldn't even listen. He, wouldn't. he is the Lord of heaven and earth. The Lord of heaven and earth does not go around fulfilling little peons' commands contrary to what you might hear on the radio or television. We do not command God. God commands us. So in verse 24, Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. 
No prophet is welcome in his hometown. Jesus could read their minds, and even though they were speaking well of him, and even though they were saying, these are gracious words which are falling from his lips, he knew that in their hearts they weren't welcoming him as their savior, their king, and their messiah. They knew that if he was to go on and to tell them the truth, like he's about to do, that they were going to do anything but welcome him. They were going to cast him out from their midst. And so, no, no, I'm not welcome in my hometown. I know that. You know that. So their view of God was too small. The first truth about sovereignty of God is God does not owe anyone anything. The second truth about God's sovereignty is God is free to bless one and not another. That's what he tells us here in verses 25 through 27. He gives two illustrations. Now in verse 24 he says, No prophet is welcome in his hometown. Let me tell you about some other prophets. These are Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Let me tell you about these two prophets. And then he goes on to talk about Elijah first. I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now can you imagine if it didn't rain here in California for three years and six months? I mean, we've been going through a drought, but at least we've had some rain. Imagine no rain, and not just for one year, not just for two years, not just for three years, but for three and a half years, there's not a drop of water falling from the sky. So what's going to happen in a condition like that? Everything dies, right? You can't grow anything. So there's no crops being produced. So what does that mean for the food supply in Israel? It's gone. People are barely surviving. They're going to have to import from some other place where they're getting rain. I mean, and, and, and a widow. Remember the social economic status of a widow in Israel in the Old Testament. Widows did not have a husband to provide for them. Usually they had no skill by which they could make a living. So here's a, the widows in Israel. Got lots of widows in Israel. And there's a great famine in all the land. Folks, people are starving to death. That's how bad this is. You need to understand that when you read this story. There is starvation throughout Israel. And widows are going to be hit the hardest because nobody has any extra to give to them. When they're begging, no one can fill their hands because there isn't anything left over to fill anybody's hands with. So they're hit the hardest. So you've got these widows throughout Israel that are in dire straits. And yet God doesn't minister to any of those widows in Israel. None of them. Instead, he goes to a Gentile widow. A woman who lives in Sidon. Now, let me back up a little bit. Do you know why this great famine had come over all the land? It was because of the idolatry of God's people. It was because Ahab had married a woman named Jezebel who introduced Baal worship, the worship of this god Baal, B-A-A-L. Do you know where Jezebel is from? She's from Sidon. God passes over every other Israeli widow that's in desperate need, 
and he goes outside of the Israelite community to Sidon, the very pagan, idolatrous place from which Jezebel had come from to fill Israel with idols. And God takes his blessing of provision and gives it to this widow over there in Sidon. How does he do that? Well, Elijah comes into town and he, he spots a widow who's picking up some sticks to make a biscuit the last meal she expects to eat in this lifetime, and then she's just going to die with her little son. And Elijah says, Thus says the Lord, you need to take care of me, and God will take care of you. That's a paraphrase. Give me, give me your last bit of flour and oil, and God will not let you go hungry. And guess what? That Sidonian, pagan, idolatrous, Gentile widow believed the word of Elijah. And she gave him her last bit of food and her oil jar never ran dry and her flour never was emptied until that famine was relieved by water, by the rains that came from heaven. So here, what does God do? He passes over his own covenant people and he gives his blessing to a Gentile. Now, do you see why these Israelites are getting a little mad at this point? This doesn't sit well with them. They don't like these stories from their Old Testament. But Jesus isn't done yet. He goes on to talk in verse 27 about this prophet Elisha. He said, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. Now, leprosy was a horrible, dreaded disease. Because if you had leprosy, you had to withdraw from your family and from friends and from neighbors, and you had to be kept apart, and whenever, whenever anybody who didn't have leprosy got close to you, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, so that they would know to stay away from you. So it meant separation. It meant alienation. And it, during the time of Elisha, there were many, many lepers within Israel. But Jesus said, none of them was cleansed. None of God's chosen people who had leprosy were cleansed. None of them. But God did cleanse one man, but it wasn't an Israelite. It was another Gentile. It was Naaman, the who? The Syrian. The Syrians were the enemies of Israel. In fact, this guy was the captain of the army of Syria, which meant that he was the arch enemy to the Jews. He was conducting these raids. The Syrians would come into Israel and raid them. In fact, that's how they got a hold of this servant girl. They took her back and the servant girl told Naaman, if you would just go to Israel, there's a prophet there that could heal you. That's how we learned that he could be healed if you would just go to Israel. So God passes by his covenant people and he gives the blessing of healing not to his own people, but to a Gentile but to the enemy of the Israelites. You see, the point Jesus is making is that God is free to bless whoever he wants to bless. He doesn't have to bless just respectable, religious people. In fact, you know what? Most people that get into heaven are not respectable, religious people. Who are the people that Jesus was blessing when he came? prostitutes, tax collectors, the marginalized of society, the outcasts, the people that, the scribes and Pharisees weren't being saved. The religious, respectable, self-righteous people, they were excluded, and Jesus was welcoming the common person who heard him gladly. They loved him, and he loved them, and he was welcoming them into the kingdom. 
And folks, today, it's all, many times it's the same way. The drug addicts, the sexually immoral and perverse, the drunkards, the people that are on the outcasts of society who know their sin, who know that they're poor and captives and blind and wretched and naked, who get it, and they, they humble themselves and surrender to Jesus and bow down and say, you're my king and my savior. Those are the ones that get into the kingdom. But the people that are righteous and respectable and religious, they're passed over. And God goes looking for other people. Remember that parable that Jesus taught? He said to his servant, everything's ready. This big dinner is all prepared. Go get your servants. And he went out there and started to invite them, and they all began to make excuses. Well, I can't come because I've just got a piece of land. I've got to go try it out. I've got a new yoke of oxen. Uh, they came up with all these excuses. And so the servant comes back and he says, well, I'm sorry, master, I couldn't get anybody to come. So does the master give up and say, okay, no one's going to come to the feast, I guess. Let's just sit down, you and me, and have something to eat. No. He says, go into the byways and the lanes and compel them to come in. Go get the poor and the blind and the lame, the people that are the outcasts, the marginalized, the people that know their great need, and compel them. Don't, take, don't let them give you no for an answer. Don't let them give you excuses. Take them by the hand and bring them. Bring them into this place so that they can taste of my dinner. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing today. He's compelling people to come into the kingdom, and the kind of people he's compelling, compelling is not the rich and the famous and the wise and the intelligent, and the noble and the proud. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says he bypasses all those people and he chooses who? Weak, despised, base, foolish. And until we're willing to come to the place where we see ourselves like that, forget it. We're lost. We're lost. We can't be saved. So Jesus is making the point not only that God doesn't owe anyone anything, especially these people in his hometown. Not only is he making the point that God is free to bless one and to bless another, but then again, God doesn't owe anyone an explanation for what he does. That's the third point. But I am going to backtrack just a little bit because there's something important to say here. Do you know, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God has got to be the most hated doctrine that I have ever preached. I have had more arguments just, just reading the Bible and telling people what it means <laughs> from that. I've had more people leave the church over this kind of a thing. I've had church discipline issues arise because of just preaching this doctrine. It is, I believe it with all my heart. Now, I'll tell you, there was a time when I didn't. I didn't believe God was sovereign. I have a very hard time with it. But God brought me to the place where I saw that it was true and that I must bow my mind and my heart to his truth. And when I did that, guess what? It became sweet to me. It's like that guy in the book of Revelation who takes the scroll and he eats it. At first it's bitter and then it becomes sweet to his taste. That's what this doctrine became to me. So sweet that when I read the Bible, this doctrine jumps off the pages of Scripture when I read my Bible. And it has become a comforting truth to me. Wouldn't it be horrible to go through some tragedy and think, well, nobody's in charge around here. Nobody's in control. It's just luck. It's just chance what happened. When our son died 10 years ago, that was just luck. 
Just fate. No, the sovereign God ordered that. And our sovereign God knew what he was doing. You see, we don't believe that God and the devil are two co-equal beings fighting it out and we're somehow in the middle and we can be pulled this way by one and this way by the other and really we don't know what the outcome's going to be because they're both equally sovereign and equally powerful. The devil is a creature. <laughs> He's like you and I. The devil is much more like a human being than he is like God because God is uncreated, all-powerful. The devil's... I'm not omniscient. The devil's not omnipresent. He's a creature. And so when bad things happen in this world, we don't think, well, that's the devil. The devil does all the bad things. And whenever there's something good, God does all the good things. You know what the Bible teaches? God does everything. Now, he, he lets the devil do some things. So the, decanism, the devil is sort of a secondary cause, a secondary agent in the working out of God's purposes. Remember when Job was sorely tried. The devil did that to him, but he couldn't have done it unless God gave him permission. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, was sold into slavery. He was in prison for, I think it's 18 years, or no, 12 years he's in prison. I mean, horrible things were done to him. But when he gets to the end of his life, he says, you meant it for evil. God meant it. Not just allowed it. God designed it. He meant it for good. God is in charge. God is free to do whatever He wants, whatever He pleases, and He exercises that right. It's not that He has the right and He doesn't ever exercise it. He's exercising it all the time. He's in complete control. He allows us to go so far and no further. What would you think of a multi-billionaire who decides, hey, I want to show some favor to a poor orphan over in Africa, and I want to give him the chance of a lifetime. I'm going to give him a scholarship. He can go to any university in the world that he wants to. Now, would you say that man is cruel, unfeeling, wicked, because he didn't give that same scholarship to every orphan in the world? Would you say that? What would you say? That guy's, that guy's a gracious man, isn't he? He's generous. He didn't have to do that. What would you think of a very wealthy woman who decides to go to China and adopt three Chinese babies that otherwise are going to be killed and take them back here to America and raise them and give them all the benefits of her wealth and her love and her attention? Would you say that woman is so wicked and unfeeling because she could have done it for more people, but she didn't? No, we say, wow, that's amazing. You didn't have to do that and you did it. See, that's the way we should look at God and His sovereignty. He didn't have to save us. And never get the idea that it was sort of 50% you and 50% God, and the two of you together, you make a good team because you do your part and God does His part. The Bible says that salvation is of the Lord. You know what our part was? Sinning. You know what God's part was? Saving. We did the sinning. He did the saving. We didn't contribute anything to our salvation. How could we, folks? We were spiritually dead. How much ability does a spiritually dead man have? Lazarus, he's dead, right? But Jesus says, roll away the stone. 
And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. How much ability does Lazarus have in and of himself just to come alive and walk out of that tomb? None. But when Jesus gives a command, you can better believe he's coming forth out of that tomb. That's what we were like. Before you were saved, you were spiritually dead. I'm not making this up. This is Ephesians chapter 2. It's in your Bible. I hope you know that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't tell it to you. If I, and if, if I don't know something for sure, I will always tell you this is what I think. I'm not telling you what I think now. I'm telling you this is the words of Almighty God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived according to the lusts of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead, when we were dead, that's when He made us alive. So God is free to bless one and not to bless another. And before we move on, let me just read to you some statements Straight out of God's Word. This is coming from Romans chapter 9. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God, who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Or chapter 11, verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What this is simply saying is that God is king, he sits on a throne, and he rules from that throne, and everything is included under his rule, including everyone who is ever saved. If you're a Christian, you owe it to God. Not to yourself, not to your free will, not to the fact that you were smarter than the next guy. You owe it to God. He's free to save you and not somebody else. And if you're saved, it's because He saved you. Okay, the third aspect of the sovereignty of God. God does not owe us an explanation for what He does. Now, in these two stories of Elijah and Elisha, Jesus doesn't say, and guys, let me tell you why He passed over all the widows in Israel and, and provided food for this one widow over there in Sidon. Let me tell you why he passed by all the lepers in Israel and healed this one leper from Syria. Jesus doesn't give any explanation. In fact, there's no explanation in your Old Testament. God just did it. And God rarely ever gives explanations for why he does what he does. Do you, have you found that? It's a bit frustrating. <laughs> you would like God to at least tell, tell us why he does what he does, but he usually doesn't. Because that requires faith on our part, doesn't it? It requires trust. There is an interesting scripture back here in the book of Job. It's Job 33, and verse 13. 
This is what Elihu is saying to Job. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? So it was frustrating for Job too. God wasn't giving an account to Job of why this was happening to him. And Job is a little bit complaining about that. And Elihu says, why are you doing that? God doesn't owe you an explanation. God doesn't have to explain what he's doing to you. You simply have to trust him and believe him. We need to be really careful, don't we? That we don't make the same mistake that those people in Nazareth did. As though by implication, Jesus is saying to them, be careful that God doesn't pass by you. He passed by the Israeli lepers. He passed by the Israeli widows. Be very, very careful that he doesn't pass over you and you be left standing with nothing on the day of judgment but wrath. Be very careful. They were demanding a sign in order to believe in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, trust me. Repent. Humble yourself. Receive the riches of my grace. Don't stand like this, justifying yourself, but agree with God. So their view of themselves was way too big, and their view of God was way too small. Now let's draw out some application. You see, the sinfulness of man and the sovereignty of God will have one of two effects. Either it will cause you to stiffen your neck against God, and you'll be damned, or it will cause you to soften your heart and you'll be saved. May God soften hearts. Even if you're a Christian, may He just soften that heart. Because our hearts as Christians can get too hard, can't they? Number one, there's a lesson here for the preacher man. So that would be me, and Kelly, and Sean, and Michael especially. And maybe there's some of, else of you who preach from time to time. But this is application for us. Notice how Jesus dealt with the temptation to be popular and loved. He didn't withhold the truth, even though it could have spared him being almost cast over the side of a cliff. Jesus told the truth. You know, I'm tempted from time to time not to say hard things, not to, not to tell you what this book says, I've said some hard things today, haven't I? I've just read the Bible. <laughs> read Romans chapter 9, and, and that's hard enough for some people just to accept, even though they know it's in their Bible. It, it can be difficult. We want to be loved. We want to be applauded by men. We want to be in the favor with other men. We have the same problems, don't we, with wanting to please man. We, we have the fear of man that we have to fight like anybody else. But we need to take an example from Jesus Christ. He didn't please men. Paul said, if I was a man pleaser, I wouldn't be the servant of Christ. I can't please you, I've got to please God. On that final day, Jesus is going to tell many people, well done, thou good and successful. No. Thou good and popular servant? No. Thou good and faithful. Thou good and faithful. 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 I have to remind myself of that all the time. You know, folks, I really desire for our church to grow and to thrive. And it's tempting for me to cut corners, cut off the hard edges of the gospel that people are offended by. Can't do it. Amen. If I do it, 
That's compromise. The Lord will frown upon that. Will lose his favor. So it's tempting to do that. But we have to seek the favor of God over the favor of man, the applause of heaven over the applause of people. And we need to teach the word of God just straight from this book. Okay, there's also a lesson for the religious man. Maybe we would fit under that category because we're here on a Sunday morning worshiping Jesus Christ. The religious man. If you're religious, respectable, righteous in your eyes, humble yourself before God. Humble out. Lower yourself down, down, down until you get down on your knees and your face is in the dust. And then there's nowhere else to look but up. You can't look at yourself and say, I'm so good, Lord. Surely, I'm one of your favorites. No. All we can do is keep our mouth in the dust, our hand over our mouth, and ask for mercy. Be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. You see, all of us are fallen. All of us are corrupt. That's what we mean by when we talk about total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that you are as wicked as you ever could be. Now, we could always go out today and commit a lot more sins. Total depravity means the totality of your being is fallen. Your mind is. Your thinking patterns are fallen. Your emotions are. Your choices are. Everything about you has been affected and perverted and corrupted by the fall. You, you were born into this world fallen, corrupt, depraved. And we just have to realize that. Okay, that's my condition. Sooner I recognize that, the better. I can get on with pleading for mercy. <laughs> if I won't re receive that and accept that, I'm in a heap of trouble. So there's a lesson for the religious man, humility. And then there's a lesson for all men. the sovereignty of God. Let's accept it rather than fighting it. The natural man has an aversion to the sovereignty of God. He doesn't like the God of the Bible. Now natural men like the God that are popularly preached because he's not the God of the Bible. He's just a God of love, God of kindness, a God who forgives, a God who shows no wrath, a God who, who doesn't do as he pleases. He does what we please. You see, in many churches, this is kind of the, the spirit of the preaching is that um, God exists for me. God is there to do my bidding. I'm really king. I really do what I please. And when someone comes and says, no, this is the way it is. God is king. We, we don't like that. We bristle against that because we're all idolaters at heart. We're all our own gods. We worship ourselves. And the, the sooner that we repent of idolatry and cast ourselves down and recognize the true and only king, the better off we're ever going to be. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Let's go to the Lord and humble ourselves. Lord, we do recognize our place in ourselves, Lord. We're surprised that you could even look upon us with pity because we're repulsive to your holiness. Lord, we confess we're sinners. We've sinned in thoughts, 
Many times, daily, there are thoughts in our minds that, that are displeasing to you. We've, we thought with, we've, we've sinned with our actions. We've sinned with our will, deliberately making decisions against you, Lord. We have confirmed that we're fallen by our actions day after day. And Lord, we're so thankful that you are a merciful and gracious and loving God. And that in your sovereign grace, you have taken pity upon us. That you've opened our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. You've helped us to see the truths of the gospel. You've helped us to see ourselves in our fallenness. And Lord, all of this makes us love Jesus more. Keep everyone here from making the mistake that these people in Nazareth did 2,000 years ago where they wanted to kill God because He exposed their sin and revealed His own sovereignty. Keep us from those sins, Lord. Instead of wanting to kill You, Lord, may we want to worship You for all eternity. Let us take the worshiper's place today. In Jesus' name, amen.